0: Julietta Henderson, welcome to Better Reading. Hi,
2: Cheryl. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Now, you are the superstar, critically acclaimed author of The Funny Thing About Norman Foreman. You've lived and worked in Italy, the UK and Australia, and you divide your time between Melbourne and the UK. And Julietta is here today to talk to us about her new novel called Sincerely Me. I just can't believe you're tremendous success with the funny thing about Norman Foreman. How are you feeling about that?
2: Oh, it's been a pretty wonderful last couple of years, Cheryl. I can tell you that after, you know, a childhood dream of most writers um, to become a published author and finally doing it in my fifties. And, you know, I've had people say to me, oh, do you, do you regret, you know, waiting, you know, you're, you're getting published later in life and, you know, did you, do you regret waiting this long? And I've always answered, no, I don't regret it, you know, because I'm the person I am, you know, I, I wouldn't have written the book that I'd written uh, if I was younger, probably, and all of that. But I tell you, there's one thing that happened to me, and this happened only a couple of weeks ago, was that I found this, I was moving, having to clean out a storage cage, and I was found this, piece of writing that I'd written when I was in high school and when I read it I was like oh my god I could have written that last week and that was the first time I thought oh did I did I really make a mistake by having that big break in between then and now because I could have maybe I could have written the book <laughs> that I did now but it's been fantastic and I've I've you know been published in a few different countries and it's Yeah, it's it's been a fantastic dream come true.
0: Um, What happened? Tell me about your recent story arriving at um, Heathrow Airport.
2: Oh, that was really funny. So... Finally, I mean, I booked my flight to go back to the UK uh, as soon as we were allowed to (laughs) travel. And I went over to the UK for the paperback publication of Norman Foreman. And also because incredibly, I was selected for something which people don't really know of in Australia. But in the UK, it's massive. It's a game changer. And that's called the Richard and Judy Book Club, um, which is run by Richard and Judy, who are very well known personalities. And if you're chosen for the Richard and Judy Book Club, you're sort of everywhere. The book is everywhere. And I climbed off flight feeling as you do after a 24 hour flight from melbourne to london and um, and i walked out of the plane and literally walked past WH Smith and there was a table, the size of a dining table full of Norman Foremans. And that's what happens when you, when you're a rich and duty uh, pick, they've got a, uh, a commercial arrangement with WH Smith's, which is the big news agency chain and stationery chains over there. And so for three months, you're sort of, you and five other people that, that are chosen for that season, uh, you're everywhere. You're basically everywhere. And so that was the experience. I've never, I've never seen my book in a, pile more than about four or five deep in a, you know, on a table or on a shelf, it's usually one or two. And to see that was absolutely unbelievable. And I think, you know, I had the biggest case of jet lag ever, but it was, it was also just, it was a dream come true. So it was very, very amazing.
0: Yeah, it is amazing. So tell me um, about, you know, where you grew up and what you did for all that time before you were a writer. So let's go back to the beginning. Were you as a child, a great reader?
2: Yeah, I was. I was. We didn't have TV. Um, we didn't have TV until actually after my sister and I left home, my parents got a TV, so that was great. <laughs> but um, we were both, my sister and I were both huge readers. My mother was a teacher and so we, were, we, we grew up reading all the time. That was our entertainment. And so I read some quite ridiculous um, things at a very young age. Like I, I wouldn't say I tackled war and peace, but I certainly remember we had a, a set of um, sort of probably imitation. They're in my head as being leather bound, but they're probably imitation leather bound. <laughs> yeah, um, you know the Jane Austen classics, and and I remember reading Wuthering Heights at about eight or nine. Definitely not understanding any of it, but I always, always was a reader, and always was a writer as well. And I I sort of used to fill up notebooks with. Oh, sappy poetry and and you know little stories and things like that. But yes, yeah, so I always had it in me, and it was always it was nothing. I didn't sort of think it was. I, I hear a lot of writers say that you know a turning point for them was that when they suddenly realised that writing could be a could be a job for them or could be a possibility. And whenever I and I've heard that quite a few times, but I'm almost the opposite to that. I think I just thought it was never not a possibility. And so I never hurried into anything. And I, I don't know, I I was never wildly aspirational in terms of my career. And I think I found it more important to have a bit of an adventurous spirit than to climb the career ladder. And so I didn't. And I I did a lot of many sort of many and varied jobs all around the place. But I think the first time I thought that I could write not write a book but that I could write to make a living was when I took a job in a in a gallery of a a very high profile photographer and and I took that job because that's my other passion is photography and in the end it led me to becoming his creative writer and that was the first time I mean I had a business card that called me a creative writer and suddenly I was like when I was traveling or whatever I could put on my form you know your occupation I could put writer and I think that opened up a lot of creative possibilities for me because it, it, I was able to earn doing something that I loved and it kind of really validated me. It, rather than being a, you know, a, a little airy thought in my head, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a book, which did, and I always, there was never, I was never not going to do it, but I kind of wasn't in such a hurry to do it. I was pottering around and, you know. Mm-hmm. Enjoying, travelling. Travelling, yeah, travelling, doing a lot of travel, doing a lot of just enjoying life and, you know, not having huge out there adventures, climbing mountains and things like that, but having my kind of adventure is the same as yours. I think Cheryl was mm-hmm. going somewhere, you know, a little a little town in somewhere in France or Italy, and just living there for a couple of months. And and also, I think that being able to write for a living, even whether it's boring stuff, which I you know I do a lot of very mundane writing for a living now, but it gives you that freedom of of movement you know, so I could be sitting in a little uh, cafe in Paris, not that I ever did, but I sit in a little Paris Paris cafe and do my, you know, my real estate copywriting and things like that. So I think that did give me a little nudge along because I realised I could do it for a living. And so maybe it was time to do the thing that I'd said I was going to
0: do on my life. Talk to me about your travels first. So so you've worked in Italy, you've worked in the UK. Tell me about those
2: experiences. I started traveling when I was quite young um, and I did a lot of traveling on my own, sort of got out and about. It gave me a lot of confidence and it just opened. I mean, I grew up in, in Cairns, which is a very small town. So it opened my eyes to the whole world, you know, how much is out there. And I think it really opens your creativity as well if you can. Do you know what I think, Julietta, with travel? Because I'm like you. I hadn't
0: been on a plane until I left Australia in my 20s. That was the first time I'd ever been on an aeroplane was long haul to Vienna. Can you imagine Anyway, wow. I know. Yeah, wow. And then I got the bug. I got the bug bad. But I often ponder about that, why I've got it so badly. And it is because I think it's the shock of the new. I think it's the different experience that really stimulates me.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Because it. it- I remember my grandmother who never travelled further than from Sydney to Cairns and back again and to Brisbane. I had just started travelling before she, she passed away, but she, I just remember her saying, even when I travelled within Australia, she said, why don't you just, why aren't you satisfied with your own backyard? Mm-hmm. I just remember her saying that and I thought, mm. oh wow, and and she was a 96-year-old woman and it, that struck me because I thought, wow, this lady is amazing and she's led an amazing life, but she's 96 and she has never travelled further than whatever that is, the Bruce Highway and the whatever highway between Sydney and Cairns and I, you know, I think that did spur me on because once I started travelling and I realised, I mean, None of us are ever going to get to see what's, you know, everything that's out there. But there is so much out there and there's so many possibilities. And as you just said before, just that it's it's the simple things as well. It's just sitting there and it just soaking up culture, isn't it? It's just seeing how different people live. And, I mean, I, I do remember when I, because I travelled when I was younger, when I would come back, people would go, oh, wow, you know, you're so brave, it's so exciting. I often used to say, you don't feel brave when you're there, you just get on with it and you just, you're just living your life in a different place. But all the experiences that you gather while you're in that different place, I think, really form the person that you are. And and I'm really, really grateful to have been able to have traveled when I was young and continue to travel now.
0: Well, do you know, this is what I think. And I, you know, I'm not the traveler that's going to spend one night here, one night there and just keep moving. I find a place that I want to visit, that I want to be at, and then I plonk myself and I have that experience. And that can be one week, two weeks, three weeks, three months. And I really enjoy that. But I was going to say to you, one of the things that I love doing when I get to a new country or a new city or a new town is I love going to the supermarket and seeing all the different products. I love it. All the different grocery it's lines. So
2: Absolutely. Oh, Cheryl, I think we might have been twins in a, in a different life because the first thing that you said before, like you're not the person to stay one or two nights. I have never, ever been able yeah. to be that person yeah. that can book my two weeks in Hawaii or book my week, you know, in, in Fiji. I've got to, I'm really greedy and I've got to go. For, if, if I can't go for a month, I don't think it's worthwhile. Yeah. But and You're so right. And the minute you land in a place and you go to the supermarket and then you become, especially... I, oh, I will never forget in Paris and I still think of it now every time I go back you can get spreadable blue cheese in a, in a little tub that is probably like buying something really tacky for them yeah but, oh my god it's so delicious but you go yeah you, and everything's different and and it's just all, you know you go in and everyone's just going about their daily business and all the people in their business suits mm-hmm. and, you know every, everyone's just doing their thing and you're this little tourist and this little stranger in a strange land as they like to say and everything go you know uh, yeah, yeah you're right I love it That's It's my favourite thing as well. That's so funny.
0: Well, I'm going to Paris shortly, so I'm going to look out for the blue cheese
2: (laughs) in in a jar. I will. Oh, look at no! It's not even in. It's not even as posh as in a jar. It's in a plastic tub. Oh, okay, all right, <laughs> I'll find fun. It's so delicious. It's so delicious. <laughs> I usually
0: have um, peanut butter for breakfast, and I'm only telling you this and everybody else that's listening because <laughs> since I've arrived in France, the south of France, I've been having cheese and jam on my toast, like a soft cheese. <gasps> that's what I'm having for Lovely. breakfast, and it's divine. Oh, and yes. it reminds me You're of my so mother. So
2: continental. <laughs>
0: And it reminds me of my mother because growing up she always had feta cheese and fig jam on Lebanese bread for breakfast and I used to think as a child, how could you eat that, you know, (laughs) and now I'm sitting down being my mother.
2: Oh, that sounds delicious. That sounds like um, the thing I got addicted to in Italy, which was pecorino and honey. I'm yeah, sure you yeah, were that.
0: yeah, very similar. Very, and very how similar.
2: Di- how divine is that? Big chunks of pecorino and you dip it in the warm honey. Oh, oh, oh my God. I know
0: how to live. Oh, don't they just? <laughs>
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: So you've, you've li- living this amazing life and amazing. I mean, in, co- in the context of how you wanted your life to be. And then at what point do you think, okay, now I'm going to write a novel. How does that come to you?
2: so it was always with me but i just don't think i ever was I, I don't think i realized the value of time i thought you know when you're young you think you've got forever and then mm. suddenly you turn well i think in my case it was probably 40 i mean i never had the 40 you know life crisis or anything like that but i think it was about then i thought uh, okay if you say you're going to do this thing you probably should do it and I did. I bumbled along and and I did go to Paris. You know, I did the thing because I could. I I went to Paris for a few times actually for three months and I, you know, I I rented a a beautiful little studio and I'd, I'd write all day and go wandering the streets at night and things like that. Lived a very lovely life, but it was probably about nine months of procrastination, but it was very nice procrastination. And then at one stage I thought, no, I, I recognised in myself that I am the world's biggest procrastinator, so I thought I need something to to make me accountable. And so I applied to do, um, which some of your listeners might have heard of and you probably have, is the Curtis Brown um, oh, yeah. course, which is... Great, great reputation. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember reading about it because I knew the agency mm. because for many years I had my, and and you know what, as things turn out, I have ended up with that agency. So I used to look at all the agencies and decide who I'd like to approach to be my agent. This is before I'd even written a book, you know. So you were another, dreaming about God. it. <laughs> Absolutely, another great form of procrastination. I was writing eight letters to agents before I even had a book. So hey, I,
0: I can beat you. that because Holly yeah. Ringland. You know Holly Ringland.
2: Yes. Um, yes.
0: Yeah. Alice Hart. She told me yeah. when I recorded a podcast with her that I think she said when she was 10 or 11, she wrote to all the agents just to let them know that one day, one day in the future, she will be writing a book.
2: <laughs> oh my god, that's brilliant! Don't you <laughs> love that? I of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do love it. That's a great story. I wish I'd done that, but I, mean, I was slightly behind her in that. I was probably in my twenties when I was thinking about <laughs> agents. But because I'd known the reputation of that agency, and I saw this course, and it was actually the inaugural course. There, I think they'd run it was the inaugural online one because I was back in Australia at that time, and. I somehow saw it and it was very new and I thought, oh, online I could do that. It's three months. And I applied. And the fact that it was a selective course, that they were only um, accepting, I think it was 13 out of, you know, what they told Mm. us was hundreds of applications. When I was accepted, that honestly flicked a switch in me because Mm. I was never one to, I mean, people would tell me I could write and I did well at school and things like that. But it was the first time I'd been really, I'd been valued for my creative. I'd, I'd been told that I was good enough. I, I was up there. I was out. I was. I had some talent. Let's put it that way, rather than just me rattling off you know, marketing stuff or, you know, real estate copywriting, stuff like that. It was it was a story that had come from my head and my heart and they, they'd liked it and they'd accepted me on this course. So that was a really big, it did flick a switch.
0: Did that course teach you how to write long form? I mean, because there is, you know, I mean, a novel is what, 60, 70,000 words. I mean, that's a different process entirely, isn't
2: it? Yeah. And no, Cheryl, my novels are about 120,000. When they There you go. I've got to whittle them down. No, I think they're on average, they're about 80,000, but mine are always too long. No. And I do say that because I have quite a few people asking me about that course, because I do bang on about it a little bit because it's such a good, such a good model because it's very guided by your peers. Like you have to review your classmates' work. And every week, You do your work and you're dying, you're absolutely dying to get your feedback from 13 people and the tutor. Mm. But in the meantime, you have to give feedback on 13 other people's work. And at first you think, oh, this is a drag, I just want my feedback, you know. But then you realise that the very reason they do it in that kind of a way is that it makes you think, more than critically, it makes you think, um, it makes you think about your own writing, because you see stuff that you don't like, you see stuff that you do like. And so you think, oh, I don't want to do that in my writing, or I do want to do that. And this is why that works. And that doesn't work. And just from the, just from the act of, you know, commenting and critiquing other people's work, you learn so much. So they don't teach you how to write. No, I don't think you know, you, you couldn't go into one of those courses not having some kind of an inkling of being creative. I think it's more about, it, it really is about your confidence and it's about understanding and ingraining um, mm. the techniques, whether you're conscious of them being a technique or a trope or maybe you are, or maybe you aren't, but it does sink in. That is why I go on about it because I do think it's a brilliant way of learning. And at first I was slightly resistant to it because I was. it, it, it is a lot of hard work to mm. critique. 13 other people's work and thoughtfully because you know that that person's waiting on the edge mm. of your seat like you are to hear the critique so i found it incredibly helpful incredibly helpful and to be honest so i went i actually went back after i did that course um i got some great feedback and i was really really enthused about what was next for me and i continued on the the, the novel that i was writing at the time and oh so it I wasn't my way. It wasn't your first Uh, novel? No, it wasn't. It was a very, very different novel. And it was, funnily enough, it's the kind of novel that I always thought I'd write because I did think when I had this, idea, oh, I'm writing a book, I'm writing a book. I always envisage myself writing something extremely literary and winning the Booker Prize one day. (laughs) But but the people I read were like Tim Winton and Richard Flanagan and um, not then, but now people like Douglas Stewart and really serious literary writers. And I always thought that that's what I'd write because that's kind of how my brain works. But when I started to write, well, that book was, and I and I really tried very hard with that one. But I did lose my way along the way because it, it had some tough themes in it, and at the time, my father was quite ill, and it was all a bit too close to home mm-hmm. and stuff. So I really lost my way with it. But then I started to read people like I don't know Frederick Buckman or uh, you know Miriam Taves, who was one of my favorites, and Jonas Johansson, and I realized that there was a place for a different kind of voice, the kind of voice that was really wanting to come out of me. And that, that's when I started to write um, The Funny Thing About Norman Foreman. And I went back to the, I, I went to the UK, I should say, um, after I, I had written probably just a few chapters of that book, because the real reason I wanted to do it was there was a, a summer school that Curtis Brown had offered a summer school to previous students and this was in the offices and it was just for a week and, it was, and I really, really wanted to go into their offices because I just I just wanted to be, so I just wanted to see what it was like in one of those amazing literary agents' offices. And so I found an excuse to go over to the UK, found some other excuses to do it, and I went over and I had my week in the office and it was amazing and it was so inspiring. I had a particular tutor who was so... Um, she was so enthusiastic and so so just so complimentary about the few chapters that I'd written in this book. You know when people say one teacher often changes mm. them for the rest of their I life. I hear that so often. One teacher. Yeah, yeah. This 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 lady, her name's Louise Wenner, and she's an author. She's actually a rock star in her own right. She was in a band called um, Sleeper back in the eighties or nineties, or probably nineties actually. And she became a novelist and she just was, oh, I don't know what it was, but there was something in her that just inspired me to keep going. Like I really, it was something that she said and I wouldn't, couldn't even tell you what it was. And so I just kept going on that book and I only had sort of three chapters done then and I just sort of, that was it. I was I was off. Yeah, so I really do thank her for that because of mm-hmm. the inspiration that she gave me and, and Yeah.
0: So Mm. it 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 only takes
2: one person very often.
0: So after the success of Norman Foreman, what was it like uh, to sit back down and write book two?
2: Oh Cheryl, it was it was I was worried about that whole difficult second novel, difficult second Mm. album, all of that sort of stuff. I think it was very different because it was right in the middle of the pandemic, obviously. Um, you know, I, I published Norman Foreman in, in the middle of lockdown mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so many other authors and it was really disappointing that you didn't get to enjoy so much of it. But but then I started writing and I live alone and so I was going slightly potty during lockdown here mm-hmm. in Melbourne because we mm-hmm. were very locked down. But I just kept on writing and ploughing through and I didn't quite know what it was I was writing. I knew that, I wanted to write a story about siblings and the sibling relationship, because I find that really fascinating, the whole thing about h- how you, your upbringing and how your, par- how your relationship with your parents and your siblings really informs the rest of your life, the way you behave, the relationships you have in the rest of your life. So I knew I wanted to do that, but I didn't have much else in terms of a plot. I didn't really know where I was going. I knew my characters. I had all my characters, which is the same as what happened with Norman Foreman. I knew my characters inside out. I just didn't know what they were quite doing. But I sat and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I ended up with about 130,000. I was going to say, oh, if I 130,000 <laughs> words. words. <laughs>
0: 130,000 words. Would have been good to get and, those dollars.
2: I know. I <laughs> made $130,000 in the pandemic. No, so I wrote and wrote and wrote. And then when I stopped and it was that really odd time when, you know, things were really, really grim during the pandemic, I walked away from it for probably about probably about two months. And then I sort of, you know, we all sort of came back to life a bit. And I sat down and I read what I'd written and I knew that I hadn't written a—I hadn't written a book. I knew I'd written many, many, many vignettes or many scenes, I should say, um, and I didn't know what tied them together at the time. But as I read through it, there was so much of it and I'd be so bold as to say at least 75% of that stuff I didn't remember writing. Wow. And it was such a weird feeling for me yeah. to read through it. I mean, honestly, I have no memory of writing. Now it's all gone very murky because since then, once I started editing and fashioning it into a book, um, I've read it, you know, 50 times since then. So now I can remember having that feeling, but I don't remember the feeling. I can't feel that feeling of, of knowing that something that you've written, you, you know you've written it, but it was so unfamiliar to me. So afterwards, I came to have all these tiny little scenes and things that I knew I really liked. Um, and I had to turn them into a story. And then Danny sort of Danny Mulberry, who's the main character, he just sort of took took it upon himself to write his own story, as they say. And mm. it went from there.
0: It's and really I, refreshing seeing a male character written by a woman. woman. I quite like that. It's It's kind of slightly different for this genre.
2: Yeah I'm really glad you say that and I didn't a couple of people have said oh that's brave you're writing as a man and you know what I never I never considered that and I think it was because authors that I really love like Nick Hornby I think he writes brilliantly as a woman and I think Mm. men have done it for so so long. Yeah exactly and I wrote as a you know yeah. How do I know how to get into the, the, the mind of a 12-year-old boy? And to me it's just my job and and I really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, a, a couple of times when I was writing this character, Danny Mulberry, I thought to myself, God, you're just writing the guy you want to marry, aren't you? Because I really, really <laughs> And what's wrong character. with I think that? I, well, there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that, Cheryl, at all, is there? If you can't find one in, for real life, you may as well write yourself one. <laughs> But I do, I absolutely fell in love with the characters that that came to me, like Danny and his, I had, as I said, I did want to write about this sibling relationship and that does inform the book all the way through. But at some stage in proceedings, the the character of Wolfie, who's um, Danny's niece, who is uh, the daughter of his estranged sister, sort of created her own point of view. She obviously had a lot to say and so I flipped things a little bit and it became more about the relationship between Danny and his niece than Danny and his sister. And I think, you know, when people read it, as in all my books, as I hope that I'll always do, I, I do tackle some heavy themes and in this book it's quite obvious that this, that, you know, there's there's the theme of depression. But I never ever wanted to write a book about depression. I wanted, to, or the person with depression. I wanted to write a book about the people who surround and love someone with depression, and that that is Danny and Wolfie in this case. Oh,
0: it's a beautiful relationship. It's actually a beautiful book. It's called Sincerely Me, uh, Julietta. Can't thank you enough for your time today.
2: Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's a bit of a dream come true, also coming on your podcast because you keep me company most mornings as I wander the streets.
0: <laughs> well, we love that. And we love your continued support because you always tune into our Thursday 2 p.m. segment on Better Eating Facebook page. And when you're not there, Jane, I'll say, Oh, I wonder why Juliet is not here today. <laughs>
2: Because she might be I working. If, I'm, if ever, <laughs> I'm ever not there, it's because I'm in the library yeah. figuring away trying to write. <laughs> yeah, because you're working. Okay, I'll let you yeah. go. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cheryl.
0: If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au.
1: This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio.